my wife and I celebrated our 15-year anniversary back in October of last year. We took a trip to the East Coast, and a part of our trip included a few days in New York City. And in kind, we stayed right downtown in Manhattan, got to do a lot of the, the touristy New York things. One of the things that we did was we decided to have dinner at Planet Hollywood the first night we were there. I've been to Hard Rock Cafe. I had an idea of what Planet Hollywood was, but I'd never been. And Planet Hollywood in New York City, I imagine, is probably a little bit different than maybe most parts of the country, given the, the population of the celebrities that come through there. As we went upstairs into the main dining area, I was inundated with loud music and with a lot of sensory overload stuff that I loved. There was a lot of bright colors on the wall. There were a lot of placards with famous movies and movie stars with explanations of the movies and their roles in it. There's a lot of paraphernalia from various movies, different, uh, different outfits that people wore and different artifacts that they had from the movie. And so we sat down, we got our menu, and I was impressed with not only the size of Planet Hollywood, but I was impressed with how they could charge so much for a steak and, and, and broccoli. And so we placed our order, and as I do often, I tend to be a bit of a germaphobe. I'm not one of those, I don't go too crazy with it, but I'm also conscious, and so I tend to wash my hands often and frequent. And so I excused myself from the dining table, and I began to make my way toward the restroom. And on the way, I was enamored with all of the art on the walls as well as the people that were coming and going, the absolute chaos. It was, it was intrinsic, the way I was pulled into the different things that were going on. And so taking all of it in, I walked into the restroom and I turned on the faucet and I put the soap in my hands and I began to wash my hands. And even there, I'm looking around at the pictures on the wall and in one moment, while I am absolutely washing my hands, I hear the toilet flush behind me and the stall directly behind me opens up and this woman comes out and she is absolutely just as surprised to see me there washing my hands as I was to see her in the men's restroom. And so in a moment, I came to my senses and I began to evaluate my surroundings. And what I noticed quickly was that there were several single stalls, all with individual doors. What was missing in the men's restroom were the urinals. And as I was standing there, turned the water off and I began to shake incessantly the water from my hands. She looked at me and I mustered up through the elevated heart rate and the incredibly high blood pressure, the embarrassment, the shock, uh, the, the, the sheer fear, the terror uh, that was in me at that moment, I just said, I, I, I'm sorry. And I, I, I walked out, and as I walked out, I tried to shield my face as though I was going to see something I shouldn't have seen, because I had already seen what there was in the women's restroom, but I was, I was just so, it was crazy, and I, I walked out. And I, I made my way sheepishly back to our dining table, and as I sat down, and I told my wife the story, all in hopes that this woman was not seated anywhere near us, but on the other side, by the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I did not see her again. But that was a moment in time where I realized that what I knew to be absolute truth in that moment was radically different from what the reality was. And I just wonder how many of us live our lives in what we believe to be absolute truth 
when in the reality of it all, it is a totally different truth than what scripture teaches. How many of us have become so accustomed or so caught up in what we do or what our goals are or what our objectives are that we lose sight of what we are called to as fully devoted followers of Jesus and we end up in the wrong place, in the wrong space, at the wrong time. I think far too often, this is most of us, we get caught up in a space and a time that we don't know what to do with. And today that's exactly what we're going to talk about as we pick up week two of our nine-week series entitled Nine, a series from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7, and into 8. These are nine attitudes, which when we shift our attitudes will lead to a change in actions, and these actions over a course of time will ultimately become attributes. People will begin to identify who we are by these attributes. In fact, if you would, I would encourage you to write this statement down. These are attitudes that lead to actions, which ultimately become attributes in the Christian life. This is the catalyst for each and every week in this series. All nine of these attitudes are beatitudes, which come from the Latin word beatis, which means a state of being. And Jesus is going to talk about blessed. He's going to say things like, you've heard it said, but I tell you, blessed are you. The word blessed in the original Greek language means happiness. So when you put the two together, what Jesus is saying is that it is a state of happiness. And what we are going to learn is that these nine attitudes which will lead to a change in action and ultimately become attributes over time are completely counter-cultural. Jesus has begun his very public ministry. He has gone into the desert. He's been tempted. He's been tried. He has come out clean. He's been baptized. He's been appointed by God. He has called his disciples and together they began a private ministry where Jesus with his disciples travel throughout the region of Galilee from towns and villages, over 200 towns and villages in fact. And Jesus in that time frame is doing three things in the local synagogues. He is teaching the word of God. He is proclaiming the gospel, the kingdom of heaven here on earth through him and he is healing. He is meeting physical needs of the people. He is doing so in the synagogues because the synagogue in each of these towns and villages are like the modern day church. It's the place of collective worship, of praise, of prayer, of teaching and instruction. But it is also the epicenter of life and ministry. It is a community center. And I argue that that is exactly what the church is called to be, is a community center. A place for people from the community to come in and encounter Christ so that their lives are changed forever. That's why we exist. Jesus is there and he's teaching. Jesus is there and he's proclaiming or preaching. And Jesus is there meeting the physical needs by healing people. As Jesus is doing this, word about him begins to spread. It spreads through the gospel, but it also spreads through gossip. And now people from Jerusalem and Judea and the Decapolis and as far as Samaria are starting to come to see Jesus for themselves. These are people who are religious. These are people who are apathetic. These are people who are men and they are women. They are old and they are young. They are Jew and they are Gentile. They are the haves and the have-nots. This is a conglomerate of individuals from all over representing multiple religions and relationships and genders. It is one of those things that I likened it last week to a high school. You think about going into high school at age 15 and coming out at age 17 or 18. From freshman year to senior year, you are in this high school with people who are in kind, therefore the same reason 
They are there trying to find themselves. They are trying to discover their identity and what they want to do with their life. And they do that through gaining knowledge. They also do that through allowing people to speak influence into their lives, through building relationships, and through trial and error. This is a group of people that is collective. It is, uh, it, it is, it is just a conglomerate of people. And there is Jesus in the middle of all these socioeconomic backgrounds and all these genders and all these religions. And he has a message that they have never heard before. And in fact, even within religious communities, the voice of God had been quiet for 400 years. So the religious leaders were leading the churches in religious practices in the hopes that these practices would somehow qualify them for salvation. And they were all kinds of sacrifices so that they could uh, pay the price for uh, their sins. And there was all kinds of rules and regulations. We'll learn a little bit about that here in a moment. But people are desperately trying to discover value in life. And they have built some truths about life based on their own experiences, truth that they believe to be absolute and concrete. Jesus shows up on the scene and he takes these truths that these individuals have built their lives upon. Many of them have spent their entire lives developing these concrete truths and he is going to take them, he's going to flip them upside down and put them on their head and culturally challenge everybody about the way they think and about the way they view life and about the way they live their lives. He is going to talk about their attitude and he's going to challenge them in their way of thinking because these attitudes will change their actions and over a prolonged period of time when done consistently, these changes in attitudes and actions will lead to new attributions. People will begin to see us different. Today, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to raise your hand. One of our ushers will come by and they would love to gift you a Bible. And this Bible is yours to have and to keep. We only ask that you bring it back with you each and every week. Bring something to write with so you can follow along and take it with you. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about the Bible being active and alive and that it has the power to change. And we believe that with every fiber of our being. This not only informs our faith, this develops our faith, this inspires our faith, this grows our faith. And so I'm so glad you guys are here for week two of our nine part nine series. We're going to read from Matthew 4, 23 into Matthew 5, 4. I'm going to explain just a little bit of it, and then we're going to jump to the book of Romans, and I'll explain where that is in just a moment. And we're going to look at a parallel story that will help us understand all the more what Jesus is talking about. Before we jump in, let's open in a word of prayer, and then let's get after it, church. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to come together in this community of faith. And I pray that as we now stand together collectively, interested in encountering you and receiving from your word, that as your word goes out, it won't return void. Father, give me the strength and the ability to preach with authenticity and integrity. And I pray that as your name is lifted up, that you draw each and every one of us unto yourself. Captivate our hearts, change our minds, mold us and make us. Meet us where we're at and take us, Lord, where you want us to go. And I pray that at the end of this time together, we will be better having come into an encounter with you. And I pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you, God. Amen. Read with me. Follow along. Matthew 4, 23 to Matthew 5, 4. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. 
And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. Whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went, people from Galilee, the ten towns, also known as the Decapolis, Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from east of the Jordan River. And one day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor in spirit and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus is faithful with the few before he ever becomes famous with a following. He's faithful to meet people's needs where they're at in community. He is faithful to love them, to identify with them, and to speak into their lives, teaching them, proclaiming the truth to them, and healing their every need. As he is faithful with the few, a following begins to emerge. Jesus, seeing that the crowd is gathering, it's becoming larger and larger, he recognizes that there are two subsects of people in the group. There are people who are part of the crowd, who are there because they want to see for themselves this, this, this new thing that's going on. There are also those that are Christians, that are, that are fully devoted followers of Christ. And so we have to ask the question, are we here because we are part of the crowd and we want to see for ourselves what's going on? Or are we here because we want to grow in Christ? Jesus goes up on the side of this mountain and is customary in his culture and context. He sits down and at the feet of Jesus are the disciples that he's called each by name. And he begins to teach not only his disciples, but he begins to speak to the religious elite, to the haves and the have-nots, to the men, to the women, to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to everyone that is there. You see, the base of the mountain acts like a natural amphitheater. So Jesus' words as they go out, they will carry not only in volume but in weight. And Jesus will challenge the way that they hear and how they think about things. He speaks directly to their culture and their context. And he starts off with a very radical statement. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. For when you become spiritually bankrupt, you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. He grabs their attention immediately because everyone knows that you work a lifetime to gain momentum in life, to gain possession, to gain wealth, to gain prosperity, to gain position in life. And so for Jesus to address the crowd, the onlookers and his disciples head on with this new type of teaching to say to them, to commission them and challenge them and charge them with a new attitude that will lead to new actions, which over time will develop into Christian attributes, to say to them, you are blessed, in fact, when you are spiritually bankrupt, when you are poor, when you have absolutely nothing. You are blessed when you move away from self-dependency, and into soul sufficiency. He's got all of their attention. And while they're hanging on Jesus' every word, he's going to meet them with a word picture that they're all going to identify with, but then he's going to flip it upside down in kind. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. Much like the early adopters and hearers of this message, each one of us can identify with mourning. One need not only turn on the television or social media or look at their phone to realize that these are desperate days between terrorism 
and school shootings and natural disasters, people are losing lives in epic proportion. Mourning is real. Every one of us in some area of our life has experienced some form of loss. And mourning is a very natural response to loss. Mourning, as described by Merriam-Webster's dictionary, is an outward expression of an eternal sorrow. It's where you would dress yourself in black or you would wear a band or a ribbon and it's a very public declaration of the sorrow and the brokenness that you feel at the hands of some loss. Jesus is teaching on mourning and everyone in his audience understands mourning. They immediately identify with losing someone and yet Jesus, what he is talking about is not losing someone. He is talking about losing ourselves. He is talking about what happens when you find out that you are in the wrong bathroom washing your hands and you are presented with the truth. What do you do when you realize that you are in the wrong place, in the wrong space, and at the wrong time? When you are absolutely convinced that you are where you know you are, but where you know you are isn't in fact where you are at all. When we come to the the, the sobering understanding of who we really are, in light of what we think we are or what we're really about instead of what we try to be about, oftentimes it is devastating. It is the equivalent of losing someone that we love and we go into a state of mourning, of trying to figure out what we do in the middle of our brokenness. And all too often the enemy will capitalize on our brokenness and will paralyze us in the middle of our mess. And I want to challenge you this morning not to ignore your mess, not to ignore your brokenness, not to ignore your depravity, not to ignore that you're in the wrong place and in the wrong time and that what you've been believing about life, what you've been believing about yourself has not been fact or truth at all, but it has been complete lie. But I want to encourage you to mourn that today because when you can accept that you're broken and lost and depraved and you've had it all wrong the whole time, when you can mourn the brokenness of your behaviors, then Jesus can comfort you. Jesus is going to address these hearers, these religious elite, these haves, these have-nots, these men, these women, these Jews, these Gentiles in ways that they had never imagined. And when he talks about mourning, he talks about a deep sense of mourning. This is a community in the ancient Near East that had paid professional mourners. People that would be paid from the family bank account to wear sackcloth and to dump ashes, to heap ashes on their heads and to go out before a funeral processional and wail loudly, sometimes up to weeks at a time, they would alternate and take turns mourning on behalf of the family. It was a very public declaration for the entire community that they recognized how broken and depraved they were. So when Jesus says, blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted, every one of them understands paid mourners. Every one of them identifies with loss and brokenness. But what they weren't expecting is that Jesus was talking about them. Their attitudes, their actions, their attributes that leads to separation from an almighty God. And when they figure out what Jesus is talking about, it literally paralyzes them. There's a story in Romans chapter 7, 14 through 25. We're going to read just a, just a part of it. 
about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is writing from Corinth, where he is with the church in Corinth. And he's writing in preparation for his visit to Rome. He's going to write this letter to the Roman church. He's going to write to, to remind them about appropriate theology and ecclesiology, the practice of their faith. He's going to encourage them to prepare themselves for his arrival. And Rome will become the epicenter of the movement of Christ for the followers of the way. It will become the hub of their faith. The Apostle Paul is writing and addressing several things. And one of the things that is tremendous about the way that Paul writes in part this biography, and I say biography because, biography because it's, or it's an autobiography because it's a little bit about his own life. He writes with authenticity and he writes with a vulnerability that is transformative for their hearers. You have to understand that this letter would be received by the Christians in Rome and it would have been read aloud. The Apostle Paul was a man of great stature, of great influence and great power. He described himself as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He'll go on to describe himself as being perfect where the law was concerned. Where there's 613 laws, rules and regulations that they had to abide by, do's and don'ts. The Apostle Paul will say of himself, where the law is concerned, I am blameless. Yet in the middle of this religious reckoning, the Apostle Paul is going to speak to his absolute wrecked state of being. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about himself in Romans chapter 7. If you're looking for Romans, you're going to take a right from Matthew. You're going to see the collection of Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You'll see the Acts or Acts of the Apostles and then Romans. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. We're going to read through it together and then we're going to talk about it. We're going to unpack it. Romans seven fourteen. The Apostle Paul talking about sin, specifically in his own life. And specifically about mourning his actions. So the trouble is not with the law. The Apostle Paul is going to introduce five things that he's troubled by. And I'll talk about that in a minute. The trouble is not with the law. For the law is spiritual and good. Recently, one of the most prominent ministers of the evangelical faith came out and made a very, very, very bold statement about the Old Testament being irrelevant. What I would argue is Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. So we need not ever consider the Old Testament irrelevant. The Old Testament is paramount to our faith and understanding our history and our heritage and identifying the law helps us realize the heart of God. What matters most to our Father. And the Apostle Paul says, so the trouble isn't with the law, for the law is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me. I'm the issue. For I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself. How many of you ever feel like that? For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it at all. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing it. It's sin living in me that does it. He is not 
abdicating his responsibility here where his own sin and grievances are concerned. What he is suggesting is that there is a power inside of him that he can't ignore that causes him to want to do evil. The carnality, the human nature, the sinful nature. Verse 18, and I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't do what is wrong. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I don't, if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I've discovered the principle of life. And the principle of life literally would be like that of the, the law of, of uh, what goes up must come down. The law of gravity. That is a principle of life. That when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with every fiber of my being, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to that sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? The Apostle Paul is mourning his brokenness. The Apostle Paul is mourning how wretched of a man he is. He is mourning how wicked his choices are. He is mourning the devastation that he has caused because he lived in an alternate reality for his entire life. This is a man who was born and raised to do what is right. This is a man who was religious, the most religious by all accounts. This is a man who was Ivy League educated. He studied under Gamaliel. He graduated summa cum laude from his class. He was top of the top. He had climbed the corporate ladder. He had done everything he believed was right. And in the process, he had gained power. And in the process, he had gained prestige. And in the process, he had gained properties. And it wasn't until Saul was on his way to Damascus, legally contracted to go and find all followers of the way, what today you and I identify as Christians were originally known as followers of the way because Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when identifying themselves, they would say, I'm a follower of the way. In other words, I'm a follower of Jesus. He had legal right to go and to arrest and to persecute, even kill anyone who had adopted Jesus as Lord and Savior, who had become a follower of the way. In all of his power, in all of his knowledge, in all of his position, with all of his property, Saul is on his road to Damascus with his servants and there he has this incredible encounter with Jesus that changes his life which is why we exist as a church to be a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are never the same and as he does Jesus is going to call down Saul why are you persecuting me and he's going to say Lord who are you I don't even know you and he says I'm Jesus the one that you're persecuting the one that you are putting to death all of these who know me and love me and are called by my name and his eyes are covered he's blind and he is led by his, his followers into straight street there Ananias receives word from the Lord a prophecy and he says you are going to go you're going to find Saul you're going to tell him that I have a plan and a purpose in his life for his life with his life 
life. And Ananias goes the next day and he says, Saul, Saul, you are my brother. And the Lord has a plan for you, a purpose for your life. There is good for your life. God is going to use you. And there he repents and he is wrecked and his eyes are open. Scales fall from his eyes and he sees himself in the mirror for where he really is at. You see, he was in Planet Hollywood bathroom convinced that he was doing the right thing. He had spent his entire life convinced that he was doing the right thing. And in one moment, the stall opens up and Jesus comes out and he realizes he is not where he thought he was at all. And he locks eyes with the Savior and he comes to this incredible understanding that that he's in the wrong place and he's wrecked. And he fully gives his life to Jesus. He gives up his power. He gives up his position. He gives up his property. He gives it all up to preach the gospel, to follow Jesus. And he writes this letter to the church in Rome. And he wants them to understand brokenness. He wants them to understand mourning when we recognize how depraved we are. And so he's incredibly vulnerable. He uses his life as a living testimony to encourage and inspire and instruct others. And he says, guys, I know the law. I didn't construct the law, but I might as well have because I know it that well. I've lived my life by the law. I've held others to the standard of the law. I believe that the law would save me. And yet when I realize the nature of the law and the purpose of the law, and I encountered the one true living God, I realized that the law, what the law did is it showed me how messed up I really am. And when Paul realizes how broken, how jacked up he is, he has but one response, and that is to mourn, to mourn in his brokenness, to mourn in his choices. Because it is in our mourning, it is in our recognizing how messed up we really are that Jesus will meet us where we're at and comfort us in no other way that could be happening other than Jesus. You see, he says, when we recognize our mourning and we try to ignore it, we try to convince the others that we're right. And, 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 and I didn't stand in the restroom washing my hands and ask the woman what she was doing there try to convince her that she was in the wrong place I quickly made my exit and realized the error of my ways and I apologized the apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome he writes to a people that are paralyzed they're paralyzed when they understand how messed up they are. They've lived one way most of their natural lives. And in one moment, the Spirit of God will unveil the truth and help them to realize how, how bad they got it. And they're left standing at the counter, washing their hands, staring in the mirror, looking at themselves, wondering how it got so bad. Do you understand that kind of morning? I have to believe that some of you are here this morning 
and you're stuck at the, at, the, at, the, at the sink, staring in the mirror, wondering how jacked up your marriage really is and how it got there. And when you realize that you're, you're a part of the problem, it breaks you. Uh, financially, you're at the end of your rope and you've done everything you can do to rectify the mess that you created. You realize that had you been wise with your money to begin with and honored God that you never would have found yourself in this position anyway. And so you just messed up. You don't know what to do. You're, into, you're at the end of your relational rope. And you're reminded through circumstances and through proximity of how, how many broken relationships you have been a part of. And it becomes all too glaring, the realization of your part in that equation and you're left to just mourn your brokenness. But the question is, will you mourn it? Or will you continue to ignore it? Will you continue to live a lie? Or will you accept the fact that you're a part of this jacked up equation and allow God to change you, to transform you, and to comfort you? Let's look at the five things that Paul's troubled by. And then I want to give us three steps that we have to take today. Paul is faced with five conflicts. Five things. First, troubled by the law because he knows the law is good and he spent his whole life around the law but now the law has actually been used against him to reveal his depravity and brokenness the second thing is he's broken and he's troubled by who he is he says the trouble isn't with the law the trouble is with me I am the problem how many of us are broken when we realize that we're the problem thing he's troubled with is the truth. He says, what I thought I've known my entire life isn't really truth at all. I've been sold and I've been selling a bad bill of goods. The fourth thing that he's troubled with is he's troubled with what he does. I know what I should do and I don't do it. I know what I shouldn't do and I do it anyway. He's troubled by the fact that he still does what he knows he shouldn't do. He's still going into the women's restroom every time to wash his hands, but he knows that's not where he needs to be. And he still acts surprised every time women come out of the stall and are shocked that he's there. Why do I do the things I don't want to do when I do the things I know I should? I just don't do it. It's no longer me. It's sin living in me. And the final thing that he's troubled with <laughs> is what's possible. Verse 24. Look at verse 24. I'm troubled with the law. I'm troubled by who I am. I'm troubled by the knowledge that I have. I'm troubled by my actions and what I do. And I'm troubled by, <laughs> I'm troubled by the potential in front of me. Verse 24, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? The problem is that in our lives, most of us read this as a hard stop. We begin to self-deprecate. We begin to mourn outwardly how broken we are or ignore it altogether. But internally, we struggle and we, we feel horrible about ourselves. And we're constantly reminded of our brokenness, our broken state. And instead of ever addressing it or doing something with it, we use it as a tool to punish ourselves. It's some sort of penance that we think that if we punish ourselves enough or we allow others to punish us enough, we'll somehow right the wrong that began with us anyway. The problem is that isn't mourning. That's not mourning at all. Mourning is acknowledging 
how jacked up you are, accepting how jacked up you are, and getting away from it. Most of us ask the question, who can save me from how jacked up I really am? I mean, who can save me? And we leave it at that. But the apostle Paul asks it in a rhetorical. Who can save me from this hot mess that I've created for myself? Praise God. The answer is Jesus Christ. The answer is not working harder. The answer is not doing more. The answer is is not thinking more or learning more or, or, or trying to obtain more. The answer isn't in self-deprecation. The answer isn't is walking around in our darkness, in our dark state. There is no, the answer is not at the end of a bottle. The answer is not the, at the end of a pipe. The answer is not at the end of a 401k. The answer is not at the end of a, of a bank account. The answer is not at the end of a boat or a car or a house. The answer is not even at the end of the church. The answer is in Jesus Christ and him alone. For we are saved by his grace and his grace alone so that we can take no credit for it. We got ourselves into the mess. We can never get ourselves out of the mess. But praise God, he gives us Jesus who pulls us out of the mess. We go from mourning into understanding that his mercies are new every morning. Oh, that'll preach right there, church. We go from mourning, from walking around in a proverbial state of darkness, covered in black, sackcloth and ashes, broken by our baggage, and into a state of experiencing in Jesus that his mercies, his undeserved favor, is made new in us every single morning. If you are here this morning, you have the opportunity to breathe in his mercies that are new each and every morning. You have the opportunity to respond, to move from a state of constant mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, and into his mercies that are new every single morning. But make make no mistake about it. Going from morning into his morning, his mercies, requires movement. Oh, come on. Going from a state of mourning and into his mercies being new every morning requires movement. Do you know that every miracle in the Bible that ever takes place is a direct response to movement? Lean in for a minute. The blind man moved to Jesus. And he said, what do you want? He said, I want to see. And Jesus picked up dirt and spit in it, made mud, wiped his eyes with it. And he said, I want you to move to the pool of Siloam. There I want you to wipe your face clean. And he moved. And in his movement, he experienced the miracle. Not enough for you? Sometimes it takes the faith of our friends and our family to move us into a miracle. There's a paralyzed man, been paralyzed his entire life, quadriplegic. His friends get together. They move to where Jesus is at. Can't get in. That's okay. They get creative. Climb up on a roof, dig a hole. They move the man down before Jesus. Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Everybody starts to talk. Who can do that? Jesus says, man, what do you want? He says, I want to walk. He says, and get up and move towards your miracle. Some of you 
there's a miracle in your marriage just around the corner. But you cannot stand in the state of mourning and expect it to change. You gotta move to your miracle. Some of you are like me in Planet Hollywood and you're caught in the wrong place at the wrong time and you're embarrassed. Don't just stand there. It's awkward for everybody. You know you're in the wrong place. Get out, stupid. I didn't hop up on the sink and say, hey, I like your lipstick. (laughs) That's a good shade on you. I got out of there as fast. When I realized how jacked up that situation was, I fled. I got away. I moved out, and it was a miracle that I didn't get arrested. There's a miracle waiting for you, but you got to move. Quit standing in the middle of the brokenness and the stupid decisions you keep making, expecting it to change. Move! In the relationships that are broken, you want a miracle? Move! You want to move from religion where you try to be good enough and into the mercies of Jesus? Move! Get out of your own way! You want the miracle of Jesus? You better move. Three things I want to share with you about mourning today. Three things. Write this down. Write it on the doorpost of your house. Tattoo it on you. Whatever you've got to do. Three things about mourning and comfort that we learn not only from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Rome. Number one, you got to get real with where you're at. Stop living in denial. I got a coach used to say all the time, team you guys are floating up the river of denial without a paddle it's time to get out and start walking the shore stop living in denial get real with where you're at get real with God you think he doesn't already know how jacked up you are he sent his son Jesus before the world he had you in mind before the world was created to send his son Jesus to save you from how jacked up you are quit playing games with him just say it God I'm sorry I screwed up I'm jacked up and be honest about the mess you're in don't don't the apostle Paul didn't make excuses he said it's sin living in me but I did it I did it I did it get real with where you're at get real with where you're at in your marriage attention to your spouse if they're acting funny you probably have something to do with it (laughs) pay attention to your bank account if you're paying $35 a month over and over again in bounce check fees you probably should start thinking about spending your money a little different and let me talk to you about money for a minute do you know that pastor Alex talked about the, the kids going to camp do you know last week five people gave their life to Jesus I had a woman in between services come out I had a woman who raised her hand like she and her boyfriend started coming in January. She said, we wouldn't come to church forever because church is boring, not this church. And she said, last week I raised my hand, I gave my life to Jesus. And she just got overwhelmed and just, just hugged me, just hugged me. When you are honest and faithful with your finances, lives are changed. It's not just me up here presenting the gospel. It's your faithfulness that helps keep the lights on that allow me a platform to preach the gospel. So congratulations for those of you who contribute to the ministry of this church. You're a part of 254 salvations to date. (laughs) 
In order to move from mourning and experiences as comfort, we've got to get real with where we're at. Get real with just how jacked up things really are. The second thing is, we have to accept responsibility. Stop superimposing it on everybody else and making excuses. Quit justifying your junk. I know how easy it is. We, 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 we end up living in a state of these lies that we create. I did it for years. I was morbidly obese for years. Morbidly obese. I'm about 230 pounds right now as I stand here. For years, I was over 300 pounds. 323 at my highest. And you know what I would tell myself and what I would tell others? Well, I'm a power lifter. I need protein. I need the calories. Yeah, I lifted a lot of weight, but I was just getting out of bed. We justify it. For years, I just, it took a woman five foot three who came up and said, don't ever preach to us again because you're a liar. You're, you're, you're morbidly obese. You're fat. You're selfish. You're going to die early from diabetes and, and cholesterol. And you're going to leave your wife alone with four kids as a single mom, all because you can't put the fork down and not honor God with your food. Holy buckets. You talk about getting real with where you're at and accepting responsibility. I was like, yeah, but I'm training for, uh, you're training for an early death, stupid. But she didn't just say that. She said, I'm going to walk with you. So she, as a personal trainer, went to the gym with me. You know the funny thing is? Most of you know this story. At the time that I weighed 323 pounds, I was a manager at a health club and a personal trainer. <laughs> True story. <laughs> we have to start accepting responsibility for our brokenness and stop passing the blame on everybody else. Your marriage isn't over just because of the other person. Your finances aren't jacked up just because of, I, I could go on for hours about this. Listen, the third thing, <laughs> when you realize that you're in the wrong place and you accept it, stop standing there. Get out of there and start following Jesus. Get out of there and start following Jesus. The apostle Paul says, oh, what a wretched man I am. Who can save me from my brokenness? Praise the answer is Jesus Christ. You want to be saved from your brokenness? You want to know salvation? You want to move towards your miracle? You want your marriage restored? You want your finances restored? You want your faith restored? Then get out of where you shouldn't be. Move now and go follow Jesus. And the only way that I know to follow Jesus is to follow his word. You cannot follow the direction of Jesus if you are not in his word. Every week, quit making excuses about why you don't bring your Bible, why you're not in your Bible. You bring your Bible because the word of God is active and it's alive it's sharper than any double-edged sword and it is the, 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 it is the foundation for our faith it informs us, it inspires us and it compels us to live the life that God has called us to live this right here, like anything else in this world unlike anything else in this world will move us out of the place we shouldn't be in when we accept responsibility and make the decision to move away by following Jesus but if you want to follow Jesus you got to know where he went you got to know where he went Otherwise, you look stupid wandering around the desert. Where are you going? Following Jesus? Where'd he go? I don't know. I think the desert. No, stupid. That was Moses. What do you need to change this morning? Let me, let me ask you this. What do you need to mourn this morning? What area do you like? Pastor Alex talked about it in between the second and third song. He said, far too many of us grab bungee cords and we tie them off from one shopping cart to the next and we become homeless hoarders. We carry around things 
that we don't need, that are useless, that we can't take with us. This morning, the enemy would love nothing more. Satan and his demons would love nothing more than for you to carry around the burden of brokenness and continue to add on to it. But I declare this morning that when you fully surrender your life to Jesus, you can move to your miracle of experiencing his mercies that are new every morning. But it begins with getting real with where you're at, accepting responsibility, and getting out of it by following Jesus. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Jesus I freely give. Be it so.